Welcome back to Flick 66, AP Screen Studies Podcast. I am Professor Thomas Parham. With me is... I am Nate Bell. And we have special guest this morning, uh, student William Dixon. And Ryan Isay is at the dentist. Boo! Okay. I hate the dentist. I hate the dentist. They always rip you off. Is it safe? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's oh, a nice callback. Yeah. Marathon man, right? Like exactly, right? Just a little old school. school. And Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> Sorry, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Sir Lawrence, that's right. Yes. Okay. The ultimate. So let's start with box office roundup. Oh, by the way, Will, Will Dixon, I just want to put in a word for you. Okay. Will is a senior this year, um, one of our best students, oh, okay. and... Selected for this film because he actually understands most, if not all, of the pop culture yeah. references in Ready Player One. So, um, oh, he's the guy I should talk to to decode that. Glad Hi. to have you aboard today, Will. Thanks yeah, for good hanging good out with us. Yours. Good to have you join us, Will. So, speaking of Ready Player One, it topped the four-day weekend chart with fifty-three point seven million dollars domestic mm. and another hundred twenty-seven point five million dollars international. It's pretty good take for non. Reboot, non-sequel, right? Yeah, but this is Spielberg. Mm -hmm. So we're going to kind of, as one of our lead stories for today, or if not our, our big lead story for today, we'll talk about the Spielberg thing and Ready Player One in particular. Uh, I did see the movie. Will, did you see it? I did. Okay, I so we can, and Nate, you saw it too? I saw it last night. So we can yeah. dish because I have thoughts. Oh, oh boy. I have definitely <laughs> <Sounds thoughts>. promising. <laughs> okay, Black Panther is number three. Mm. It's still in the top five with $11 million. It is now number 10 overall and number 5 domestic. Wow. And we're not done yet. Wow. They, uh, they being pundits, suspected still might have 30 to $40 million to gross before it's taken out of theaters. Who hasn't seen it yet? I would presume that Disney will probably take it out of theaters by the time Avengers Infinity War opens up. Because yeah. you don't sense. want your own superhero movie competing with your big superhero movie or That's your... Or your theoretical big superhero movie. That makes sense. Yeah, boy, it'd be incredible, wouldn't it? If, I mean, Infinity Wars is supposed to be the biggest well, it's superhero movie yet, and it, it doesn't look like... I don't know. Well, Do you think it'll... It's it? number 19 out of Marvel's Cinematic mm -hmm. Universe, and it's the culmination of right. phases one, two, and three. So we'll see. Uh, we're actually going to have a special podcast right before that movie opens up. Mm -hmm. So... Um, also in the top 10, two faith-based films. Hmm. I Can Only Imagine is still up there, as well as Paul, Apostle of Christ. That's right. Has uh, anybody seen either of those? I have not. I'm afraid not. No, yeah. I, I, it seems weird, right? I mean, I, we should be seeing it. We're I, yeah. I'll be honest, I have no motivation to see. Mm -hmm. No motivation? Yeah. I'll, I'll, read the, I'll read the book. Of Paul, the possible good. Highly recommended. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see Caviezel play play Luke mm -hmm. instead of Jesus, mm -hmm. and they're still talking about making a Passion of the Christ sequel. Yeah. When people wow. get confused, he's Jesus, he's Luke, he's Jesus, the resurrected right. Jesus. It's out. kind of a step down, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a demotion. <laughs> but he had a haircut for Luke. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it looks looks quite good. I think yeah. for and then they could do a prequel age. to Paul Apostle of Christ. And just call it Luke. Luke. Disciple of Christ. <laughs> but they have to recast Jesus as somebody else. Well, the good thing about doing movies about the disciples is you've got at least 11 sequels, you know. Seriously? Uh, reboots in you. But look, uh, the, I should see I Can Only Imagine. Because it has, it is one of those faith-based films that has impacted culture to a certain extent. People are talking about it. Even, even critics who aren't believers are talking about the Christian, you know, every few years we're, we're treated to... Uh, a spate of think pieces, trend pieces, 
about faith-based films and their impact. So I, I don't know. Uh, the film is okay, I hear. So obviously, <laughs> that's it's, high praise. I have it's, no idea, honestly. Can we put that on a movie poster? <laughs> yeah. The film is okay. It looks. I mean, you know, it looks nice, and it's not uh, the type of faith-based film that seems to have a huge axe to grind with. Uh, with the rest of uh, society. So, I don't know. It, it looks like it's more inspiring and safe, but, uh, you know, it's good to be uh, uh, aware of these things, right? Obviously, as, as, as Christians and, and educators. So, um, but we're more interested in talking about What's other coming? stuff. Exactly, Ooh, right? Got two yeah. big releases coming up this Friday. The R-rated sex comedy Blockers, and if you've seen posters for it, there is a rooster before the word. So Blockers is kind of like the truncated, uh, PG-friendly advertising version of the... uh, I'm so out of touch. What what on earth is this movie? It's a John Cena... uh, Okay. uh, Ike Barinholtz, I forget who the female is. Leslie Mann. Leslie Mann, that's right. Oh, AKA Mrs. Judd Apatow. Yeah. But she's quite good. Yeah. Did Apatow produce this? Or? I don't know, but okay. I know that uh, I really fell for her in Georgia the Jungle. Mm. Wow. Because she was she had a fun oh. she was the female lead in that. Wow. And she did a great job and interesting. She's been in some of her husband's movies, obviously, but she can hold her own. Oh boy. Okay, just um, for the premise of that. The premise of this <laughs> is three teenage girls. <laughs> Decide that they're going to lose their virginity on prom night, and their parents find out, hence the blank blockers, and try to prevent it. And evidently, it's, uh, I have a friend who's seen it and said it's it's, uh, raunchy, but it's very, very funny. Mm -hmm. And some of the early reviews have said, you know, it's not the most original idea. But because but because it's three girls instead of three boys, and because it's executed well, Mm. that it... Deserves oh, high praise. Right, and it's directed by Kay Cannon, who was a, um, a story person on, on three uh, on Thirty Rock. On um, she wrote the script for Pitch Perfect, so oh, she's kind oh, of yeah. this is her directorial debut oh, cool. after spending some time as a writer. So she did the Pitch Perfect movies. Apparently, she wrote all three of those, and uh, also worked on New Girl, Thirty Rock. So I don't know, maybe somewhere in that. Same sphere, uh, yeah. Expecting something like that. It's ironic. I, I'm always steering my screenwriting students toward either comedies or horror slash thrillers mm-hmm. because those are the two types of movies that you can make as a newbie. Mm-hmm. They don't require stars. Yeah. It's about the concept. And uh, this, the other big movie that's opening this Friday is John Krasinski's thriller, A Quiet Place. It's his directorial debut. Right. And I don't know if it's the first time he's worked on screen with his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is Emily Blunt mm-hmm. and the new Mary Poppins for uh, Disney's big great Christmas choice release. by the way I like that cast should be uh, Jenna Fisher mm-hmm. for what for his wife oh she's on a TV show yeah, with Oliver Hudson I know, but which isn't that the great. Jim and Pam oh, yeah, yeah well right. live a horror movie but as of yesterday when I checked Rotten Tomatoes this movie has 100% mm, yeah, and right. the people the advanced screenings that debuted at uh, one, I don't know if it was South by Southwest but it's getting rave reviews. It's a great yeah. concept. It's getting rave reviews. A it's silent horror film. Yeah. A, right. a, a sci-fi horror thriller. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm not big into horror films, mm-hmm. but I am big into sci-fi films. Well, the gimmick of this, right, is that there's no dialogue in it. Because is there no dialogue? Everyone does sign language, yeah. The premise oh. is they're monsters that can hear you, uh, and they're, they're based on sound. So, they, so all the characters never utter a word of dialogue. 
That's what I hear. Wow. Now, that's exciting to me. Now, there is diegetic sound in the movie. There's sound effects. Right, 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 right. You know, normal ambient noise, Ooh. but no speaking. This, and it, this yeah. Green Studies for us said diegetic yeah, sound. Yeah, so I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> sorry, must have, have a graduate degree in Green Studies. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, an Do you want to define that for some of our viewers who might oh, not? Oh, yes. Or, sorry. sorry. Listeners who Di- might not know what it means. <laughs> diegetic sound is, is, is a word... Uh, that's a term you you know invented so that people like me could have a job. Uh, it's a, uh, diegetic sound means uh, sound that's coming from within the world of the movie. Extra diegetic sound is coming from outside the world of the movie that the characters can't hear, like John Williams' score right. or you know ba, 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 an omniscient narration or something like that. But yeah, diegetic sounds, sound effects, you know, leaves crunching, uh, you know. Dialogue is obviously the most one. But anyway, no dialogue in this. It's all sign language, Ooh, which is kind of wow. cool. And subtitled, of course. I, I tell my uh, mm-hmm. my writing to film analysis and criticism students, mm-hmm. if you throw around words like diegetic and mise-en-scene, people will know, I've taken some film studies. And you'll be so popular yeah. at, at, at parties. You know, people you just drop that. Yeah. Hey, baby, I love your diegesis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so interested in, in seeing this film because I actually just got back from a conference where I was talking about silent horror films wow. in the sound film era. Oh, wow. And and how that sort of uh, survived as an aesthetic choice. So it's cool. kind of cool. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to see those movies. Absolutely. Or not, I won't see both of them necessarily this weekend, mm. but I do plan to see them in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the small screen, the television. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Roseanne Revival, season 10, yep. premiered on ABC last week with 18 million viewers. That's a lot. And last night, the episode that aired still had 15 million viewers and won the night. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of head-scratching and possible soul-searching in Hollywood about, oh, are we catering to, you know, are we, are we, uh, are we making good quality entertainment for people who live in Trump country? Okay. Right. Uh, did either of you have a chance to catch it? No, um, I did. I did not see it. Yeah, what channel is it on again? ABC. ABC. So I caught it. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, I'm not a big Roseanne fan either. The show and its original run, or right. Roseanne Barr as as, as a comedian or okay. as yeah. I understand um, the appeal. I mean, she, it's a working class blue collar family, mm-hmm. and she's a housewife who's kind of sarcastic about her right. her job yeah. and that kind of thing, right? And you know, trying to, but at the same time, there's love within the family, and that keeps them together, right? The thing that I didn't like about the original run, and they've preserved it for this revival, is that it's just mean spirited. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mm-hmm. big one of the big story issues in in uh, episode ten, mm-hmm. or sorry, ten oh one, the the revival mm-hmm. premiere, mm-hmm. is that uh, Roseanne and Aunt Jackie, her sister, are estranged because Roseanne, in real life and on the show, is a Trump supporter, and Jackie is a lesbian. No, Jack, oh, no, no, no. Jackie's the sister. Oh, Jackie, yeah, no. she was the uh, who's Roseanne's sister? Lori Metcalf. Lori right? Metcalf. Yeah. Okay, right, but um, right. yeah, she's she was a lesbian, right, on the show. That's I don't think so. Was she? Yeah, I thought it was like. The big ending was that you realized that she was a lesbian and that Dan like passed away. No, that you see. Here's the thing. Ah. This is one of the problems I have with Roseanne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Season nine, the final season on the ABC, the original final season, mm-hmm. uh, the family wins the lottery, so they're rich. Okay. And then in the what was supposed to be the series finale, yeah, the revelation is that Roseanne's writing a book. And she didn't w- really win the lottery, but mm. Dan had died. Mm. Yeah. And so they have to undo that in this premiere. Mm. So 
He's asleep wearing a uh, is it a CPAP machine for yeah. the people with um, mm-hmm. sleep apnea. Right. And it's like, Dan, Dan, what? I was just asleep. I thought you were dead. Uh, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. So I don't know if there's anything from season nine that can be taken seriously. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, when she and Jackie have been estranged since ostensibly the election, and when Jackie enters, she says, what's up, deplorable, or words to that effect, oh, see, and right. she's wearing a t-shirt that says nasty woman. And uh, then the big reveal gotcha. is that she did, you know, Roseanne's, uh, Roseanne's uh, enmity for Hillary Clinton did result in Jackie voting for Jill Stein. Okay. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. now she's second-guessing that because she helped put uh, Donald Trump in the White House. Hmm. I don't know. I thought it was very clumsy and too easy. They didn't, I mean, the revelation that she voted for Jill Stein, not Hillary Clinton, was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the show was just, you know, some of the, okay, just a rundown. So Roseanne and Dan have, you know, they only, because of healthcare costs, they can only afford half their prescriptions and they're twice, half the prescriptions for twice the money. So we have a dig at mm-hmm. our current healthcare, healthcare system. And then um, Becky is going to be a surrogate and they have the original yeah. Becky back. And then the woman she's having the baby for, or is going to have the baby for, is Leslie Gorenson was the original Becky, and Sarah Chalk was the replacement Becky. Yeah. So this is the way to work in both actors on the show. Okay. Huh. So she's going to be a surrogate, and of course, most of the huh. family is against it, except for Aunt Jackie. Mm-hmm. And then Darlene moves back in with her two kids. Okay. And then DJ is fresh out of the, I think it's the army okay. from overseas. His wife is still in, but his daughter is black so obviously his wife is black so and then one of Darlene's kids is a boy who who wears girls clothing and they deal with that more in episode two I just felt that there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance yeah and I don't know how to explain that um Mm. you can't really have your cake and eat it too I don't know. Like it's I said, I'm not a fan. They're spaces. trying to cover all yeah, the bases, yeah. but it's all just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, we love our son. He's just going, you know, we love our grandson. He's going through a phase. And then when the grandson, you know, Dan gives him a big hug before he goes to school, dressed in the girl's clothing. Mm. And then he says, I'm going to miss him. And it's like, oh. Interesting. I don't know. Cognitive uh, dissonance. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's. Well, it was pretty notable, right? For in its day, I mean, Roseanne was a big hit show. It was a big hit show because of its and female protagonist and her kind of satiric view of man, marriage, children. And it's interesting right. that the revivals, the the season ten premiere, mm-hmm. was better than the season nine, quote unquote, series finale. Interesting. So, uh, and the demographics obviously, very, it did not play well in the cities, but it played well in red states, especially. Uh, Urban or suburban areas, mm, okay. uh, mm-hmm. rural areas. Gotcha. So, gotcha. I, I don't know. I, I think that both sides have been overplaying their hand. Uh, one of the things that made the news is the president did call, excuse me, did call Roseanne Barr to congratulate her on the great yeah. ratings. But mm-hmm. the thing is, the show's really not about that. And if you're paying attention, you know, she's got a biracial granddaughter, yeah. and she's got a cross dressing grandson. Mm. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't plan to keep watching it, sorry. Mm. Just not my jam. Intriguing. Anywho, let's move on. Uh, NBC's gift to 
America was Jesus <laughs> Christ Superstar Live. Jesus yeah. Christ Superstar. Wow. And, so, and, it, and, it, and it aired on Easter Sunday. Yeah. Nate can carry it. I, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you get a chance to see it? No, I've um, seen the movie, and that's oh, my only right. experience. This is, okay. well, at least you've seen the movie. I mean, yeah. that's more than most people. At least the that. full disclosure, I'm not a fan of the movie. Okay. I'm not a fan of the movie, and the dude they cast as Jesus, I think his name is Ted Neely, bored me. It's like, it was the 70s when my favorite media version of Jesus from the 70s is probably uh, Victor Garber, formerly mm. of Alias and uh, Legends of Tomorrow. Played Jesus with an afro. Wow. You know, uh, uh, strawberry blonde afro. In Godspell. In the Godspell God's movie God's from the right, 70s. Right, right, right. But Ted Neeling is Jesus Christ Superstar in, mm -hmm. the, in the film version. Yeah. I just comes across as dull. Hmm. And then um, Robert Powell and Jesus of Nazareth, NBC's miniseries, just, the dude never blinked. He just, like, stared through people. And I was like, <laughs> you're giving me the creeps. Um, I was really surprised. They cast uh, John Legend to play Jesus in this. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and he was the last one billed, and it's like, and and John Legend as, in quotation marks, Jesus, whatever that means. Interesting. Um, what was your take on that? Because I heard mixed things. I mean, he's he's a very likable performer and a, he's great, a, very, a great musician. He, he brought a likability to the role yeah. that Ted Neely didn't. Mm -hmm. The way the role was written, Jesus is still a little bit of a cipher. Mm. But because... Because of uh, who John Legend is, that worked well for the production. Mm, right. um, Sarah Burroughs, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, pop star, she sang Magdalene. She did a great job. Yeah. And I think casting up. The, the primary roles were, were cast with basically uh, noteworthy singers. Alice Cooper, mm -hmm. showstopper as Herod oh, wow. for okay. Herod's song. Wow. And complete with, he was wearing like this brown. Goldish brown outfit, and you know Alice Cooper, but he just—I mean—the the audience went wild. Yeah, the audience went wild. Yeah, and complete with like Rockettes, Tile, Showgirls, <laughs> sure, him. sure. But he killed, and then Brandon Victor Dixon from Hamilton, and also The Color Purple, right. played Judas, and um, it was interesting casting him because most people probably didn't know him. Yeah. And he did a great job. And okay. I thought it was cool casting the leads with well-known singers yeah. and supporting roles with uh, accomplished Broadway actors. Hmm. A dude from, uh, Ben Daniels from first season of House of Cards and Law and Order UK played Pilot. And it was an interesting choice. And uh, No, but I, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Okay. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. It was... Yeah. It was very a little overproduced, mm -hmm. and he had way more than twelve disciples on this version. Mm -hmm. But uh, and a lot of them were tatted up. Mm -hmm. But it was it was enjoyable, and I'm seriously thinking about downloading this, this some of the songs of the wow. score. Do you think that this resonated with um, the kind of Christian audiences that we're used to interacting with and talking about? Because the the original. Yeah, the, the original was kind of controversial. It's, it's focused on Judas. It's kind of um, kind of um, the way it digs into the psychology of Jesus. But it felt, in a way, to be very uh, I don't know, <laughs> extra biblical to say the least. Right. Well, so it, it seemed with, with any of the Jesus movies, they almost yeah. always. I think the only one that's purely done by the Bible is the one Campus Crusade made. Um, and I'm sorry, it's not a great film. And right. that, that wig Jesus wears is like one of the worst things mm -hmm. ever. It could have had its own movie. Um, but yeah, they didn't really mess with the script at all. Mm -hmm. I think they restored a song that... I think they merged... I think there was a song that was either in the show and not in the movie or vice versa that they put in the... Uh, mm -hmm. Or they reassigned mm -hmm. the singer of it. 
But I thought it worked well. It yeah. was uh, one thing in its favor is they didn't try to stretch it out. Some of the commercial mm-hmm. breaks were ill-timed, mm-hmm. but the running time was about two hours twenty minutes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was good because sometimes mm-hmm. uh, I know the Wiz Live and the Christmas Story Live. Mm-hmm. They stretched it over a three-hour complete period. Jeez. Just that Christmas Story Live last year. I'm like, I should have just watched the movie again. That was just terrible. Does it make room for the Ascension? What's interesting is after the crucifixion, basically after he after Jesus dies, he is taken. He's hanging on the cross, mm-hmm. which is suspended, mm-hmm. and then they move it back into this white light through a cross-shaped opening, and then this white light is shining through. Ah, so it so leaves it for the possibility. The and it's interesting yeah. that the movie does not allow for any such possibility. Right, right. But this Even does. Godspell, actually. Godspell, well, which depending, is, depending on how you stage that last uh, number, True, true. Because a lot of stage productions of Godspell do work in the resurrection true. scene, whereas the movie version mm-hmm. doesn't, per se. Right. But right, it was, right. I mean, it was, it was interesting, it was entertaining. I'm hoping that, it, the ratings were pretty good, too. I think it was the top show on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And uh, That's right. ABC actually ran the Ten Commandments, like, Saturday this year, instead of... I don't, I don't think they wanted to compete head-to-head with Superstar. Mm. But it was, I, I, you know, as a, as a television studies prof, I thought it was interesting. Mm. And, the, you know, great music, great singing for the most part. Yeah, and, uh, music is good. Yeah. <laughs> like the 70s. It was it interesting. should. You, you, you sang a little bit of the, the themes, the title song. Yeah. That occurs after Judas hangs himself, and they yeah. did that by having him climb ladders and the one on the ladders falls. Mm. But then... Uh, the same actor, Brandon Victor Dixon, sings the song mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huh. with you know accompanied background singers. So oh, I see. Interesting. Uh, one last TV thing before we go to our uh, kind of our feature story for the week. Ooh. I attended WonderCon a couple of weeks weekends ago, and I got to see a, a complete preview of Netflix's Lost in Space, which drops on April thirteenth. Mm-hmm. Are either of you familiar with? The, yeah, the original, version of Lost in Space. The original series, yes, and and I did see the movie as a kid when it came out in the late yeah. 90s. My only experience uh, is the movie. Oh, that's I'm a shame. so sorry. <laughs> yeah. I am so the show I, I will say this. Yeah. When I saw the movie, I remember it scaring the heck out of me. What scared you? I don't know. I was, think or? it was just like the betrayal that happened and them being like, Alone, like I was so lost. Yeah, I was. The original is well worth watching. Shaking out. Irwin Allen, you know, produced it. It's got that '60s um, vibe. Um, It was mid '60s, right? We did a mid '60s. It predates Star Trek. Or Uh, or yes, yeah, by a couple of years. Not only that, it's uh, Mm -hmm. Roddenberry actually had pitched Star Trek to CBS. They Mm. didn't buy it, Mm. but some of his ideas on how to save money, they incorporated in Lost in Space, Ah, so he was not happy. Right. Um, It ran for three seasons. It ran for three seasons. The um, fascinating thing about the original Lost in Space is it has two pilots, like the original Star Trek, Mm -hmm. completely different pilots. The first one was called Nowhere to Hide, and it's basically Space Family Robinson, which is the comic book, 60s comic book that inspired Lost Mm. in Space. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they realize, oh, this doesn't have enough conflict, and they're, ooh, let's add some conflict, and mm. they created the character Dr. Zachary Smith. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the second pilot is called The Reluctant Stowaway. Oh. The first pilot never aired on CBS. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sci-Fi Channel has aired it over the years, and it's available on the, the DVD box sets. But uh, what happens is Jonathan Harris played Dr. Smith, who sabotages the Jupiter 2, which is why they get lost. 
and programs the robot to destroy the Robinson family. Yeah. But after the first arc of season one, when it proved that the Will Dr. Smith robot aspect of the show was catching on, by the end of this, well, especially season one, they start to quote-unquote reform his character and make him less of a threat and more of a comic relief. And by season three, it's just devolved into the Will, Dr. Smith, and Robot show. Yeah. And it's bad. There's an episode from season three called The Great Vegetable Rebellion <laughs> that even as a kid, I'm like, this is stupid. Yeah. Talking yeah. vegetables. The, the, yeah. There's, oh, a talking, so there's a guy dressed, made up and dressed as a giant carrot, and it's just, and the actors hated it too. That's someone, the creators of VeggieTales, must have been watching that. <laughs> like genius. We're going to stash this away for later. Genius. But when I was a kid, I was, a, I loved, my two obsessions as, as a kid growing up in the 60s mm-hmm. from TV were, Will knows this because he's taking a superhero cinema class with me right now, were uh, Robin from, from Batman 66 yeah, mm-hmm. and Bill, Billy Mooney from Lost in Space. Yeah, right. Danger, Will Robinson. Yes. Uh, now, it does robot. have the robot who's modeled after Robbie the Robot, right, from Forbidden Planet. Robbie the Robot shows up in a couple of episodes ah, of classics, Lost in Space. Gotcha, right. The right. cool thing about the reboot, mm-hmm. first off, they've cast it well. Um, Toby Stevens, who played Captain Flint on Black Sails for Four okay. Seasons on yeah. Stars, also Maggie Smith's son, Dame okay. Maggie Smith's son, mm-hmm. is playing John Robinson, and then... Oh, forget her name uh from from deadwood molly parker from deadwood is playing marine robinson mm-hmm. oh by the way they're both doctors dr john robinson dr mm-hmm. marine robinson mm-hmm. and so they're two actors i really uh, admire and love mm-hmm. and i don't want to spoil too much for you but the kids are cast well okay and we get parker posey as a gender flip dr smith Ah, okay uh they spent some bucks on this. It looks fantastic. Okay. And I read. Um, I tried to stay away from too many reviews of it uh, before seeing the before seeing the pilot. But they had the entire cast and the showrunner at WonderCon Live. Mm. The kid who's playing Will is terrific, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm I've got to look up what his name is because I, it escapes me at the moment. But he was just good and humble. And mm. uh, here's a quote I wrote down. His name is Max Jenkins. I think he he's eight. And one of the audience members asked, did you get a chance to meet Bill Mooney? And Bill Mooney is in the pilot somewhere. I didn't okay. see him on screen, but I saw his name in the credits. Hmm. And Max Jenkins said, quote, I got to meet Bill Mooney, and I'm proud to call him a friend. We bonded over Pete Seeger and comic books, end the quote. And I'm like, this is an eight-year-old kid, yeah. and just hmm. humble and smart and good. And as with the previous version, the show depends a lot on having a good actor play him, and he does. Hmm. Um, I don't want to give you away any of the plot twists okay. in terms of... But all of the aspects of the classic show are there. But this is a rethink almost on the order of Battlestar Galactica. Okay. There is a Robinson family. They're going to be lost in space. But um, it's not exactly how it happened before. And after watching the... as Halfway through the pilot, I'm thinking, this feels more like the original pilot than the aired pilot. And sure enough, after the episode ended, when the credits rolled, it said, based on... Based on the teleplay, nowhere to hide. Okay. Bye, mm. and uh, which was kind of cool. Another thing that won me over: they used the third season theme theme song, written by then Johnny Williams, now ah. multiple Academy Award winner John Amazing. Williams, John Williams. Yes. Yeah. and he's credited right. now as John Williams. Yeah. But they used some of uh, that theme song as underscore and in the end title credits. So I'm in, mm. and. The cool thing is, uh, my stepson turned six 
6 on the day that it drops, April 13th. And because they were aiming for a good family adventure hour, yeah. uh, my wife and I are going to let them watch it because there's nothing objectionable in the pilot. I mean, there are people in peril, but it's re- that was one of the things that they wanted to do is nobody's making a good hour-long family adventure. Yeah. And this is that. That's so true. I recommend yeah. it. Hmm. Deep breath, guys. Okay. What's next? Okay, our lead story. Let's let's talk Ready Player One and kind of the question I put on the rundown. Is Steven Spielberg still relevant? Hmm. Um, some facts before we dig into the movie. Ready Player One is his best opening in a decade. Yeah. Only Lincoln has made over $100 million. Okay. Or wow. more than $100 million if you're a grammarian. And Ready Player One production budget was between 100 50 to $175 million. So realistically, they made back the production budget that's not including the marketing. Hmm. Um, I I hated the post. We talked about that in our Oscars preview episode. I still have not seen the post. Don't yeah. bother. It's <laughs> really, really. I mean, it was number... I'm going to see it. It was my. Biggest, it was number nine in my ranking of, of the yeah, nine yeah. Oscar nominated. Yeah. I just did well, not he made that it. in a hurry. This one was and much longer like in the making and is obviously more of a, a blockbuster type of film. So I, I was looking forward to this film ever since I heard about the book uh, from some of my students a couple of years ago. I, I have not read the novel. I don't know mm-hmm. if anyone here has. Have you read it? But... Yeah, but it, it was written. Um, yeah, so the so the author um, Ernest Klein. Ernest Klein also worked on the screenplay. He has a writing credit on the screenplay. He is the writer of a little known yet well worth seeking out film called Fanboys. Has anyone heard oh, yeah, of this yeah, film? Yeah, yeah. it's almost completely forgotten. It was made in two thousand nine. It's about a group of uh, Star, Star Wars, Wars fans, fans who take a, a dying friend to to visit Skywalker Star Ranch, Star and it's it's actually kind of good and poignant, and it. It, it captures what it feels like to love something like that yeah. so much. And, and so it makes sense that this, this guy who is so steeped in fan culture would pour his um, energies into making a, a novel and then a film that basically validates um, fandom, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Should we even try and describe the plot to people who haven't seen it? It's a little bit complicated. Well, Maybe it's, we it's not that complicated. I mean, they've, they've streamlined it considerably from the book. Mm-hmm. So, or so I've heard from my yeah. friends who've read the book. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Plus, the the trailers for it use mm-hmm. a reworking of the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory song, sure. you know, Come With... Yeah. Her Imagination is the actual yes. song. Yes. Uh, so that's underscore for the trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kid... Um, was it Wade? Wade, Wade Watts. Wade Watts. Poor kid. Yeah. And this is like 50 years or so in the future, or no, I guess 30, 20, 30 years in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He lives in the Stacks in Columbus, Ohio. Ohio. <laughs> Shout out to my buddy Jeff Gay who lives in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. But he lives in the Stacks. Basically, trailers are stacked on top of each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. And there is IOI, is this multinational corporation that runs the Oasis which is this uh, virtual reality destination that everybody is addicted to. You go into the Oasis and everybody has their avatars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wade's avatar is... Parzival. Parzival. Named after the knight that sought the Holy Grail and Arthurian legend. And he falls, he falls in like slash love with an avatar named Artemis, Artemis. and wants to meet the real uh, girl mm-hmm. behind her behind this avatar, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of like the twist from the Willy Wonka or slash Charlie and the Chocolate Factory book plot mm-hmm. is that 
the uh, the founder of this of IOI mm-hmm. has well, yeah. sent has basically has this quest for these keys. Well, he's not he's not the uh, the head of IOI, is he? Uh, he's, no, he's, he's not the head of IOI. The the, the, the man who invented the, the game. Oh, yeah, the man who invented the game. Okay, sorry, I, I, I said yeah. corrected. The man who invented yeah. the game. Halliday. Halliday. Right. It's IOI. Is it James Halliday. James Halliday. James Halliday. Yeah. Yeah. And played by Mark Rylance, yes, uh, Oscar very, winner for Bridge of Spies, very, another Spielberg mm-hmm, film. Mm-hmm. But basically, yes. This, so this 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 corporate um, bigwig, uh, Sorrento, wants to uh, find these keys that uh, that the creator of the game has embedded in the game, so that he can take control yeah. of the entire of the uh, oasis and basically fill it with you know corporate. annoying ads and things yeah. like that. I and and Halliday yeah. is played by Ben Mendelsohn. Nobody plays a villain like Ben. Ben yeah, Sorrento's played. Yeah, he ben eventually gets a, he he played a good guy in. Uh, uh, the Darkest Hour. Mm-hmm. He plays. Is it George the Sixth or George the Eighth? Mm. Uh, the same, yeah. the same the, King George from the King's yeah. Speech, mm-hmm. and did a great job. But usually gets cast as a bad guy, like right. Director Krennic in uh, Star Wars Rogue One, right. and, yeah, right. and uh, other stuff. Yeah. So it's this quest narrative. It's right? a quest narrative, yeah. and then along the way, he has he has a team of. Uh, people that he only knows through the Oasis, and eventually yeah. we will get to meet them in the flesh. Right, right. Um, and there are, one of the one of the things that makes this movie stand out, or pick your favorite verb string, is that there are all these loving Easter eggs to 80s, 90s pop culture. Yeah. The Iron Giant, which was another Warner's release from the '90s, mm-hmm. has a significant cameo. Yeah, there are hundreds and hundreds. Oh, there is yeah. too many to count because yeah. people can choose whatever avatars they want, and some, yeah. sometimes those reference video games and films. But also, the game itself is filled with the type of pop culture iconography that obsessed Halliday as a creator, and he yeah. came of age in the late '70s and '80s. So that's the period of film history and uh, gamer history that's, that, that gets the most attention. So the holy hand grenade of Antioch, yes. for example, yeah. from Monty Python on the Holy Grail. But makes yeah, King Kong is thrown in there, King too. Kong. There are a couple of classic references. Zemeckis yeah. Oh, the, the Zemeckis cube, which yeah. is kind of fun. It looks yeah. like a Rubik's cube. But yeah. It has powers. <sighs> yeah. Back to the future type powers. Right. I'm... What's I don't thought? know. I didn't hate it. Okay. But I didn't love it. Yeah. Okay. And I saw it in 2D. I saw it with uh, I saw it in Adobe Cinema at AMC, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they. I don't know. It was just it was a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was mucho mucho. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear Will's take on this okay. because you yeah, guys, you're I the talk, target. I audience. talked yeah. to you yesterday, Good. and you really dug it, and I wanted okay. to know why. Yeah. Right? So here's kind of my whole opinion on it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I also, I'll have a question to ask you guys to see mm-hmm. maybe if this is the separation between it, mm. but, so I adored the movie, mm-hmm. I thought it had some very obvious flaws, I thought there could have been a little bit more character development mm-hmm. and really working on the character transformation, I thought the transformation was there, but mm. it would be nice to see a little bit more steps Wage along transformation. the way, yeah, he wage transformation. Have, he didn't have much of a transformation. I mean, he mm-hmm. kind of went from his whole life is the oasis and studying type thing to realizing that, hey, there's kind of a reality uh, outside of this. Like, there's a great quote at the beginning of the movie that's like, 
people went from stop trying to solve problems mm -hmm. to just trying to outlive them. Yeah. And I thought that was like really interesting. And we talked a little bit about how the world is, although you think of the Oasis as this incredible thing where you can be whatever you want, whoever you want, the world is complete dystopia outside. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's like a, I call it I, my nickname for the film is the hunger video games. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There sure. you go. Um, sure. But knowing those flaws, knowing all that, I still felt like the Spielberg wonder was there. And mm -hmm. I was still just absolutely enjoying kind of all the references and mm -hmm. everything like the movie. I described the movie as like one that you could put on in the background when like you're trying to go to sleep and it's not one that you need to focus on it's one that you can put on while friends are over and they just want to like catch up instead of watch a movie and it's one that i think i'll watch in the future with like my kids and be like just bursting at the seams to show them all the different be like oh you don't know you, you didn't live through the period that those but obviously true. you know but you you've it's Obsessed to, with the eighties to a fault, 90s, don't you think? And nineties. And nineties, yes. Um, but like, my big thing is like, where are the classic movie references? Now, I know, yeah. I know that um, uh, the creator of the game, Halliday, liked a certain type of film, and he filled his game with those icons. But um, to me, it's it's almost too much of an enclosed universe. You know, film history <laughs> extends far, you know, past the 70s. And, uh, mm -hmm. and they're only, I also think it's in a weird way, as busy as the film is, as full as it is, um, it also feels like there are certain things missing from that universe. Art. Huh. Well, yes, in, in a Soul. large sense, maybe. But, but also... I mean, for me, the most intriguing reference is the movie that is is the film that kind of frames the whole narrative, and that is Citizen Kane. Hmm. It's about a, a guy looking they for the rosebud, they make rosebud yeah. secret right. to unlock the. But here's the thing, like, you know, it's not even clear that anyone in the movie uh, has even seen Citizen Kane. You know, oh, it's yeah. just it's just a reference. You see, there, we have all of these these references, these kind of winking nods to pop culture but without any of the resonance of those movies Here, where they come from here's a, it's just there for recognition's sake will you um, said something that fascinates me mm -hmm. yeah. it's the kind of movie you can have on the on in the background mm -hmm. when friends come over yeah that mm -hmm. means it's like an electronic fireplace type movie yeah. versus yeah. a movie that screen you need saver. to yeah like a screensaver yeah. and I don't disagree with you, yeah. but I don't think that's a strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess my point is is that mm -hmm. I felt like it was a very, very easy movie. Like, there's difference between, you know, a movie where I have mm -hmm. to go and sit there and, like, really pay attention and really, like, mm -hmm. every Oscar season I feel like I have to do this where I really, you know, pay attention, try to catch all the details, everything like that. With this movie, it felt like I could just eat popcorn, mm -hmm. have fun, mm -hmm. and, like, just yeah. let my mind go. But here's the thing. Isn't that what the movie is preaching against? That kind of passive consumption of entertainment? Here's the thing that the film has to reckon with. So you're saying that there's a level of cognitive dissonance. Well, there's an irony. Uh, it's totally unironic in its celebration of pop culture. It's Of mostly vacuous pop culture. A film like this has to reckon with the fact that it is a huge corporate entertainment 
that is basically decrying a huge corporate entertainment system. And well, it's it's I, basically Time Warner mm-hmm. is IOI for right. all intents and purposes. Here's the thing. And for yeah. the for the the movie to take pot shots, yeah, at you know its corporate doppelgangers, yeah. again cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, yeah. Go ahead. It had a message at the end that I think wasn't followed through or with, with enough conviction, and that is that it's better to spend time in the real world than in the virtual world, but it makes the virtual world look so much more fun and desirable. See, here's and, where, yeah. here's a problem I have. Mm-hmm. Yes, the real world sucked. Mm-hmm. However, comma, mm-hmm. the Oasis itself just seemed busy. It didn't mm-hmm. seem like that much fun. Huh. Yeah, where was the uh, the the act of so, creation that, uh, or the act of innovation in the Oasis? Aside from even before they're trying to actively solve these riddles mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that Halliday left, yeah. I didn't. I mean, and granted, I'm an occasional video game player. My okay. soon to be six year old stepson, mm-hmm. he's addicted already. Mm-hmm. I but was... I didn't. It didn't seem like the kind of place. I wanted. I would want to go for extended periods of time. Okay. What Just about you, Will? I, you've well, experienced VR. That was the, and, yeah. the question I was going to ask you guys. Have mm-hmm. you guys, at some point in your lives, had like the online, uh, like video game like World of Warcraft kind of, or something? Yeah, kind of yeah. obsession type thing. Online or video obsession. game. Just online. I've never been obsessed. Like. No, I've, ne- okay. I've tried it, but I've I, never been. So hardcore. I think that might be something that yeah. the movie hits me with is yeah. when I was a kid growing up, uh, there's a scene in this too that I just smiled at, mm-hmm. obsessed with Halo. Like yeah. Halo 2 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was the, my main game. And there's a scene in this movie and where... Spart- and Spartans made yeah, an appearance. where it's like mm-hmm. seven Spartans are running and then it cuts to show like seven 12-year-old kids are running and mm. then it cuts back and they're all Master Chief. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's great. But like, mm. I remember... Like, that feeling of just kind of excitement and things like that, of getting on, checking to see what friends, like, you had on, inviting them to parties, and then, like, just spending, yeah. like, an entire night mm-hmm. just playing around in different games and kind of this own little yeah. separate universe type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I felt that movie captured that pretty mm-hmm. well. Huh. Yeah. The, um... Huh. Jeez, I, I did, you know... I, Atari 2600 with my jam back yeah. in the day. Mm-hmm. I still, the one button, one joystick yeah. can never be Beaten. overstated how yeah. awesome that mm-hmm. was compared to now where every, you don't have enough appendages to, to exactly. handle the controls on the Xbox mm-hmm. and uh, PlayStation con, uh, controls. Mm-hmm. The Finding the Easter egg is still, I remember I was playing King's Quest, I want to say it was 2. Mm-hmm. That dates me a little bit. But I was playing King's Quest 2 on my ship in Japan. I might have been underway at the time. Mm. I'm playing it on my Atari 1040 ST, and all of a sudden, the Batmobile, the 66 Batmobile, yeah. whizzes by. Never happened again, but it was just the weirdest thing. <laughs> it's like, what the? Wow. So there is a joy to finding an Easter egg like that. But, you know, perhaps you're right, because I've never, you know, the online thingy, just in terms of the mm-hmm. the, the age gap between us, young Padawan, yeah. um, <laughs> I don't know. It just for me, I, I'm gonna tag into something Nate said. Mm-hmm. It just seemed to be missing something. It's not mm-hmm. horrified enough at its own premise or satirical enough to really like. It, does that make sense? Like yeah. it, it all goes down so easily, but the kind of um, future that it depicts is is very dark to me, anyway. Yeah. Um, maybe not so dark uh, to a, a, the younger generation, but it, 
I don't even know what I am. I'm considered somewhere between millennial and Gen X, I guess. But but I oh, you're not X. You're, you're too young. I guess I'm too young for X. But but here's the thing: like the the movie is it signals a shift in like nerd culture where it used to be this niche thing that you know you got made fun of for liking, but now it's the dominant culture, right? Yeah. It is the entire culture, and the and the whole. Um, of Hollywood is basically focused on on this idea of, of fan service, right? Kind of getting fans what they want, and and that to me, the film reflects that reality, but isn't critical enough of it. I'm going to push back a little bit mm-hmm. because this film only opened with fifty, you know, with fifty million dollars domestic. Mm-hmm. That's not. I mean, if you figure out how many well, movie tickets that actually is, uh, that's not serving. I mean, movies, you know, for a blockbuster movie to open. Mm-hmm. I would not call this a blockbuster except for the, the foreign box office. Well, I, I, and I think, I think it, it's I think it's too ins- outside of the theater. I think it's now. too inside baseball for mm. mainstream mm. pop culture versus you know when you're playing huh. the the video games which cost fifty to sixty dollars a pop. That's one thing, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think you got those guys and mm-hmm. and gals in the box office opening weekend. Mm-hmm. But realistically, they're not making more money. It's not mm-hmm. gonna. Box office takes generally okay. do not well, increase. Look, I, I, you know, that may be true, but I'm more interested in what the film is saying about fandom. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, you know, so one of the underlying messages of the film is that if you consume enough pop culture, you can rule the universe, right? Like, because, no, no, wait, wait. The, this is actually the best time in human history to be a nerd of something. And we all are nerds of something here, mm-hmm. right? So we're not, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that to ridicule. But, like, Steven Spielberg is James Halliday. Lucas is James Halliday. These guys were marginalized in their time, but the nerds have won. They are now the trillionaires of today, right? The, uh, the ones who are controlling culture, right? And, um, and the, the film is basically saying it pays to be, you know, so insular and so kind of... Um, aware of references and it's here's, like here's the thing yeah, i think really? steven spielberg mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. james halliday mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he is no longer mm-hmm. the fact that he's been mm-hmm. on a and we talked about this in our oscar episode mm-hmm. i have not loved the spielberg film since the sure. since schindler's list and mm-hmm. the year schindler's list and jurassic yeah. park and one's a great one's a great film one's a great popcorn movie but i think that part of the problem with this movie is he was the wrong director for this. Hmm. I think... I disagree, Tom. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. First of all, no one could have kind of gotten all the different brands together except someone like Steven Spielberg, right? I think think Um, it would have been a better movie if he had executive produced it or produced it, but gotten somebody who's a little bit more in touch with with contemporary culture because here's the problem. Mm -hmm. The complaints I've seen on social media from my friends who love the book Mm -hmm. is that the narrative was gutted. Mm Mm-hmm. And Klein is par- was party to that. Mm. Now, granted, Zach Penn, mm-hmm. the way the writing mm-hmm. credits read, Zach Penn mm-hmm. took the first stab and then Klein rewrote. Okay. All right. But so, I, I just okay. felt I just felt that he did not. My, from from my friends who adore mm-hmm. the book, sure. they did not do service. They Spielberg and company did not do service to the narrative and the characterizations from the book with this film. That's fine for me, not having read the book, but. Mm-hmm. In answer to your question, is Steven Spielberg still relevant? I would say yes, because he is the one who created the culture no. that this film lives in. And that's the most that's why Steven Spielberg is the best choice to direct this movie, because I see a, a, a 
the most famous director of the modern era. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's just face it, right? Next to he's Luke. got he's got more films in the AFI one hundred yeah. than anybody else. Okay, there you go. And he here's this famous shaper of pop culture, basically reckoning with his own legacy. Yeah. This is the world that he helped create, and he's kind of. I wish it had gone further into critiquing his own role in this dystopia. That, I don't. Uh, that we're you know that, that that reminds me of when a couple of years ago Spielberg and Lucas complained about the block, Hollywood blockbuster syndrome and how Hollywood is headed for a collapse. Well, you created that syndrome, and right? I'm like, no, you were the you were the right. wrong two people to be right. talking about that because you yeah. two are most responsible for creating right. where we are. I still maintain mm. he helped create where we are, yeah. but I don't think he can. He can't. He has the aesthetic mm-hmm. distance to mm-hmm. properly critique it, yeah. and I think that's why the movie falls short. Mm-hmm. I left the theater, and I'm like, "Huh? Mm-hmm. It didn't like." Wow! Right. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. I, wow. There have been movies I, I saw, <laughs> and I'm like, "I got Truman Show is a prime example. I saw mm-hmm. the Truman Show when it came out, mm-hmm. a studio screening at Paramount because I worked on Jag at the time, and I'm like." That movie, I gotta see it again because mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta see it a second time to unpack it all. Mm-hmm. This movie, I'm like, mm-hmm. what were they trying to say? Will, did you find it's, threads that uh, that that prove us wrong here? It's kind yeah. of funny. I will say uh, two things real quick. The first one is that it's kind of funny because after I saw Ready Player One, I went, I wrote a Facebook post about it, and then went to sleep. Mm. Woke up the next day and was like. I gotta go see it again. Yeah, yeah, so that's kind of funny. Um, yeah. The other thing too is that there's a couple scenes. I agree with Nate that I think Spielberg was perfect to direct this one mm-hmm. because he does capture like that wonder mm-hmm. and gri- like when I think of his other movies, E.T., mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, things like that. Before mm-hmm. he became the serious Lincoln, mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan director that he is now. Um, mm-hmm. But when I think of those, what he does so well is capture like wonder. And there are some mm-hmm. movies like. When I first saw Interstellar and they're chasing the drone uh, and things like that, I'm like, I kind of wish well, Spielberg was behind this. What was this the moment of wonder then for you well, in Ready Player One? There's a couple. Um, one of them that I think is great is there's a lot of kind of like research needed to be done by the main character in this movie, yeah. and he goes inside the the archives archive yeah. of, of mm-hmm. Halliday's mind, mm-hmm. and this like. Research shown in movies is a boring thing. Like, most of the time, it's, you know, a person at a library, and it's a montage of them flipping through ten books until they find the answer, and then we get out of there as soon as possible. This, every time we went to research, I was engaged. I was kind of excited. Like, the music, the way it was shot, everything about that was great. And I thought the uh, homage to The Shining in this movie was, Mm -hmm. like, I know Spielberg loves Stanley Kubrick. I know that they were, like, friends before he passed and things like that. And I just, like, that entire kind of sequence, I was just having a blast yeah. with it. Right. Like, well, it's kind of like fun. the scene where, where Tom, so you've seen Citizen King, I yes. hope. Yes. You haven't. A couple you, of if you times. Yeah, we were going to throw you out. If you graduate from APU without having seen Citizen yeah. King, we haven't done our jobs. But yeah. it's like that scene where Thompson, the reporter, goes to the archive uh-huh. to read the Bernstein, is it Bernstein? No, it's Thatcher's manuscript. So, yeah, so it's got that mystery, yeah. that sense of um, kind of... Uh, discovery. Yeah, discovery to yeah. it. That, See, uh, for me, the film was a triumph of simulacra, mm-hmm. which that's a, that's a schmancy... Uh, PhD mm-hmm. term that means something has been copied so much we've lost sight of what the reference mm-hmm. is of what oh. the original thing is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just uh, the library scenes were fun because yeah. mm-hmm. I'm a big library fan since mm-hmm. you know before since I was a little kid and yeah. especially in grad school. Yeah. Now 
You kids these days, <laughs> I'm, you almost have to guilt them or browbeat them to go to the library because so much is accessible from right. from your from your laptop. Well, I'm just mm. you know a little bit dismayed at the fact that you know someone watching this might see this and say, okay, all the stuff that's in this movie, those are the only movies that matter. Yeah, you know, and oh. yes, maybe they'll be turned on to see you know. A, complicated movie like The Shining, right? Yeah. A, a famous mm -hmm. film like that, which is which actually has, I think, the film's best set piece is yeah. when they enter into the world of The Shining. Um, but, you know, th there's so much more to film than just those cheeky little references that we get in that movie. It, it's drained of all that's, its significance. That's you know? Some opera. Yeah, and so, I don't know. <laughs> just like, I enjoyed it on a superficial level, but, um, but what it's saying about... Um, you know what? What is enduring? Um, where's all? Where are all the references to good movies, <laughs> like the, the older classic films, and not just pop culture, but you know, I don't know, literature yeah. too. Read, read a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, books. Yeah. There, is there any mention of books um, in this universe at all? I sound yeah. I sound like such a cranky old guy when I say this, but Get um, up my lord. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I almost wanted Spielberg to kind of interrogate. This this uh, yeah. this concept a little bit more to kind of um, dig deeper into the uh, how how sad and destructive uh, the world had become. The, the early scenes where where we're watching this you know, the montage of the stacks and everybody's in their own living room doing stuff. It, yeah. it was played for laughs, right? Um, but you uh, think so? yeah, sure, yeah. People, you know, moms falling off of couches, you know, yeah. in, in in VR in their VR equipment, and but like that's. That's the kind of reality that we've been warned against uh, for many decades in books, you know, like Brave New World and, you know, 1984 and all that. And I just think that um, a film that's cheerful and fun um, is almost um, shortchanging itself when it comes to saying something significant about where we're at as a culture. So is it, is it fair to sum up by saying, Will loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Tom hated it. And Nate's kind of reserved. Somewhere in between, yeah. Somewhere in between. I admire Spielberg as a as a as a technician yeah. and yes, a, a generator of memorable images. But that's another thing. Like, where were all the Spielberg references? Well, I he specifically avoided references. Okay, yeah. I saw his own film. He didn't afford to be like and Star Wars for that matter. He, he thought it would pull people out. Of yeah, the well, so maybe. a love letter to himself. He didn't mm -hmm. want to do that. <laughs> ah, but that's Disney probably said no. <laughs> you know, but that's telling. The book yeah. is like just loaded with him. So yeah, yeah. Just, I don't know if that's admirable and self-effacing or. He doesn't want to be a part of this, yeah. right? Or is it calling attention to itself by what's missing? Maybe, maybe so. Know. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a complicated okay, film that I, I actually think we sh we could be talking about. Uh, I, I will. Now. I will give a shout out to my friend Marianne Butler. She's a critic in the Bay Area mm -hmm. uh, for Bleeding Cool, and her advice, which I took, see it on the biggest screen possible. Yeah. You do yourself a favor. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks for uh, coming. Yeah, to thank you guys for having well. me. We might have to have awesome. you back for that yeah. uh, Infinity War Please episode. Please do. And we'll see you or hear you or you'll hear us again in a couple of weeks. Take care.